Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is a special bonus episode of Judaism Unbound, the Trefa Banquet 2.0. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. In 1883, one of the most significant things happened in the history of American Judaism. And another thing happened that was very significant in the history of American Judaism. They both happened on the same day in July in Cincinnati, Ohio. The thing that seemed most significant at the time, and maybe in retrospect, is that the first class of American-trained rabbis graduated from the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, Ohio. That is now the main college that trains reform rabbis, but at the time it wasn't necessarily seen as part of the reform movement. It was actually meant to be an American rabbinical training program, and the organizers of that graduation were very excited to welcome a wide variety of people and rabbis from across the spectrum of Jewish life in America, and so many rabbis rabbis, including Orthodox rabbis, traveled to Cincinnati to take part in this special occasion. And the celebratory dinner that was served that night became the other really famous and significant and important and maybe even more important thing that happened that night. That night, the menu that was served to all these folks included many non-kosher items. It didn't include pork, but it included quite a bit of shellfish. And it was quite clear to many of the Orthodox rabbis in attendance that this was not a meal that they wanted to eat. This event became known as the Trefa Banquet, Trefa meaning non-kosher in Yiddish. Our guest today, Alex Wall, decided to recreate a version of the Trefa Banquet. She called it Trefa Banquet 2.0, and it happened a couple of weeks ago in the Bay Area. We were intrigued by the idea of creating a Trefa Banquet 2.0 in the first place. And then when we started to see the reaction to news that came out about the event, both positive and negative, we thought it was really an interesting way to explore some of the ideas that we've been exploring over the course of this podcast. So we're really pleased to welcome in a special bonus edition of Judaism Unbound, the organizer of Trefa Banquet 2.0, Alex Wall. Alex Wall is a contributing editor to Jay, the Jewish News of Northern California. She writes a monthly column about Jews in the food world, as well as other features. Alex Wall is an award-winning journalist, regularly contributing to a variety of papers, including the San Francisco Chronicle, Berkeley Side, Bay Area Bites, and Edible East Bay. As you can tell, her particular interest is food. She also works part-time as a personal chef. And in the Jewish world, she is the founder of the Illuminashi, the not-so-secret society of Bay Area Jewish food professionals. In addition to her food-related work, she is also the writer and producer of The Lonely Child, a documentary in progress about a song written in the Vilna Ghetto about her grandmother and mother and its relevance 75 years later. We're really interested in talking to Alex about the Trefa Banquet 1.0, the Trefa Banquet 2.0, and how to think about Jews who don't keep kosher. So, Alex Wall, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's really great to have you. We're looking forward to this discussion. Thanks for having me. 
Well, so let's jump right into it. It would be great for our listeners if you could give us a little bit of a sense of, of who you are and how you came to put together this Trefa Banquet 2.0. It all starts with, ah, gosh, where do I start? I attended a, a conference in Colorado over two years ago put on by the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation. It was for Jews who work in the food industry. And I had been very involved with Hazon before that and its sustainable food conference and its movement. And this was completely different because this was limited to people who actually made their living in the food world. And so I was there. Um, I've worked as a personal chef. I'm also a food writer. I also I started my career as a journalist in working for Jewish newspapers, and that evolved into um, writing about food later. But it was such a great confluence of people who were doing all different things in the food world, everything from chefs to food writers to food bloggers to entrepreneurs to restaurateurs. And I kept witnessing all of these amazing conversations taking place and then people being restricted by the fact that they, li they lived across the country from each other and saying, oh, it would be so great to partner with you on that, except blah, blah, blah. And so uh, they offered us grants when we went home to, to have some kind of, put on some kind of experience for your peers. And I ended up getting together with two people there that one I had kind of met before and we all hit it off there in Colorado and we agreed, let's cook a meal together when we get home. And we ended up using a grant from the Schustermans to put on a Shabbat dinner um, during Hanukkah, and we invited other Jews that we knew who worked in the food industry. And through that dinner, the next morning I woke up and was like, this is what we need to do. We need to have this group in the Bay Area. It needs to be J Jewish food people, people who work in food and who are Jewish. And that morning I started a Facebook group called Bay Area Jewish Professionals. Food, sorry. Bay Area Jewish Food Professionals. And um, pretty soon I put a call out after we got together and said, we need a better name. This name is not going to, you know, help attract any members. And one of our members came up with the Illuminati. We took a vote and um, that became the chosen name. And we've had now... The chosen name. <laughs> you do that on purpose? Right. I hope so. The chosen name. That's funny. Um, no, I didn't actually. Uh, so... We've had about six meetups so far. I mean, we meet three to four times a year. Some are bigger scale, some are smaller scale. And, you know, the, the, the group really took off immediately because the Bay Area is a very secular place. We have lots of people here who are Jewish culturally, but, you know, they don't feel comfortable in synagogue or the traditional kind of Jewish institutions. And it's still emerging. So it's still, we're still very young. And so I don't really know like what it's going to look like in five years, but I feel like I am creating a community for people who, you know, might not find Jewish community otherwise. So with the Trefa Banquet, last year we had a woman named Rachel Gross, who's a professor at San Francisco State, and she, one of the things she studies is nostalgia, and food is a major category of how she looks at nostalgia, American Jewish nostalgia, and she's written about like the hipster Jewish delis, and David Walensky, who wrote the first article about the Trefa Banquet, which is how you found me, he's good friends with Rachel, and he told her that she should meet me, because she was, you know, going to teach this class on American Jewish foodways, and, and I invited her to join the group. I did notice that she taught an entire lecture on the Trefa Banquet, and I thought, oh my God, this is the perfect opportunity because, you know, yes, of course we could just be a group of Jews who get together and eat trafe, but that wasn't the intention behind this at all. Um, I really see this as a learning opportunity. I began asking some of my friends in the group, like, have you ever heard of this thing called the Trafa Banquet? And almost nobody had heard of it. 
So all of these factors were kind of, you know, just swimming in my head. And then, you know, once I decided to do it, I kind of remembered that we have a Jewish family in Marin County who farm pigs and rabbits and other animals too for food. So I, you know, they didn't know who I was, but I emailed them and said, I'm putting on this event. And the farmer, Mark, you know, immediately said, sure, we'd love to be a part of it. And he, in fact, had never heard of the Trefa Banquet either, but he was the one that told me that rabbits weren't kosher. I would have never thought to include rabbit on our menu. Um, I wanted a wine sponsor, and I asked this Israeli winemaker who someone had int introduced me to, and as soon as he heard what the event was, he said, oh, yeah, I think kosher rules are so silly. I'd love to do this, you know? So <laughs> it just, everything got, just came together beautifully. I will say that I had no problem finding chefs to cook in it. Almost every chef I asked was super excited to do it. People really wanted to be a part of it. People were excited about it. Um, and I think Re Rachel talking about the Trefa Banquet just added so much to what otherwise could have been a fun evening, but it just wouldn't have been the same. I would never do this without the learning component. So I'm curious if we could make a distinction between having a group of Jews who are interested in food coming together and hearing a lecture about this momentous event in American Jewish history, and then the other component of actually having a meal of you know, explicitly and very broadly non-kosher food, you know, and, and to what extent, so, so I think obviously, and it's, and it would be very uncontroversial to imagine that people interested in food get together to hear a lecture. I'm curious about the part that, that was about, let's all get together and eat non-kosher food. Like, is there an element to that, that, that you had sort of a, a vision for the, the meaning of that in, in putting together this event? This is a reality of, of Jewish life today, that we have many people who don't keep kosher and many Jews who eat pork and aren't embarrassed to say they eat pork. So I did explain the event to the members before I announced it with a message, and I'm going to read you a little piece of it. I want to explain that I am not doing this just to be disrespectful by celebrating Jews' love for all things forbidden to us, even though we all know it's real. Since I started this group, I have struggled with how to deal with the dietary laws that most of us do not observe. While we have had meat and dairy together at our events, we have not served any pork or shellfish, and for the time being, I will continue with that, except when we have an all-out celebration of it like now. If I kept kosher myself, I would no doubt feel called to found a different group for the kosher community, but that's not who I am. I founded this group to celebrate the amazing food culture of the Bay Area that happens to be populated with so many Jews working in it, and of course, 95% of them don't keep kosher. It's really just this interesting conundrum, because of course, I want to be accessible to as many people, but again, if I, if I made this group meet in all the kosher establishments of the Bay Area, we'd be limited to like two, and I didn't found this group for the same people who would, you know, who you'd have to do the different tables at the potlucks and all of that. Like, it's just not, it's not a religious group by any, by any means. So I feel okay doing it this way. Yeah. But so it's interesting because in, in hearing you describe this, I'm hearing on the one hand, something that's far less sort of controversial than some of the backlash seems to imagine, right? It's that you're not a group going out there and trying to make some public national declaration of some kind, some shove it in your face type of declaration. You know, what you're describing here is an event for a particular group of people that got some press coverage, um, but that but you're describing a group of people who are profoundly interested in the fact that they're Jewish and they're profoundly interested in food. And you're creating an event that both 
tells them that, hey, there's a history of this not always going according to the way that the powers that be think is right. And uh, and and so they're going to learn about it and also sort of experience it in a deep way. You know, it, it makes me think a lot about the Trefa Banquet itself, which folks like Jonathan Sarna have made the claim that the first Trefa Banquet was sort of an accident, that it, it wasn't the people who were in charge didn't actually mean to be serving non-kosher food, but it sort of happened through a series of accidents. And what you're doing here is saying, no, this is not an accident. We are doing this very knowingly and very... Uh, and very planfully, but our plan here is not to make people angry. Our plan here is to sort of affirm the Jewish identities of the members of our group. Is that fair? You know, even the affirming Jewish identities of the people in the group, I don't know if I would put it that way. I, I, you know, I always hesitate to speak for the members of the group because I don't, you know, it's such a wide range. Like we have people in the group who send their kids to Jewish day schools and we have people in the group who probably this is the only Jewish thing they do all year, like, you know, coming to one of our events. And so it's really hard to put everybody in just in one category and say this is their Jewish identity. Um, yeah, I also want to say the fact that Jonathan Sarna found it worthy of commenting on my trade for banquet was a huge honor, even though I feel like his piece, um, you know, not, I don't want to say that it missed the point because it's Jonathan Sarna and he's obviously brilliant, but you know, he, he ended it by saying something about let's hope this isn't, uh, you know, doesn't create the division that the original one caused. And of course that's not my intention. I mean, these are people, the people who came are all just fine with each other and they're going to continue to be as far as the press coverage goes. Um, we still have like two more articles coming out about it, which haven't come out yet. And I'm still waiting, but like I said earlier, I feel like these are people who eat trafe already. I'm not forcing them to do it. I'm not making, I, I didn't think I was making this huge statement. I just thought it was a really cool way to do an educational event. I mean, that's the bottom line. I think what got the ire up of so many in the press was the fact that we had three rabbis there. One of them it wasn't quoted and she ate the vegetarian entree. So I don't want to say that all of them ate the treif, but the fact that we had two treif eating rabbis there and one of them offered to me to bless the event, I couldn't have imagined that happening when I first <laughs> envisioned this event. I didn't think we'd have one rabbi there. I certainly wouldn't have thought to invite a rabbi. Um, I've been very conscious, like since I founded the group, even in the beginning, you know, when we had the event at the winery, I asked a few people that I'm close to, like, do you think we should say a hamotzi or some kind of blessing before we ate? And I chose not to. I felt like, you know, I really don't know the Jewish observance level of most of the people in this group. It was a brand new group. I don't want to alienate anyone. I, we're not here for religious purposes. So I chose to go without any kind of blessing, even though I would have loved to say the shakakiyanu also. But I just didn't. I just felt like I, it, it, I shouldn't, you know. Um, and so all of our, our events, we haven't had any blessings. And yet <laughs> the fact that this is the one where, you know, one of the chefs is good friends with Rabbi Sidney Mintz, who is Rabbi at Congregation Emmanuel. It's our largest reform synagogue in San Francisco. And when she wrote to me out of the blue to say, Rebecca invited me to the Trefa banquet. I love that you're doing this fantastic idea. Would you like me to offer a blessing over it? I felt like, wow, I can't say no to that, you know? Yeah, I I want to I want to highlight that though because like the, I want to like draw two conceivable kinds of events. A one category which I think by the sound of it y'all fit into and one which for all the people out there listening maybe they would like to create um one category I can see is exactly what you said which is we're going to do this event because lots of Jews eat tray food and there's not necessarily a big statement provocation 
in mind. We're just going to have this and we're going to learn some history and we're going to have a good time. And I absolutely, I want more of those events to happen all over the place. And to anybody listening who's thinking that could be cool, do it. I also think that um, by the sound of it, this wasn't you, but others could take the transgressive tack that that some folks thought that you did take. Um and, and I would actually like to see that, too. I'd like to see more of that because I do want there to be folks out there who say, you know what? Yeah, trafe. That's we are eating trafe and we are saying to the world like that's cool and that's Jewish. And I, I think back to Emma Goldman, who in 1907 held a Yom Kippur picnic. Um, she 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 like she didn't have a middle of September or early October whenever Yom Kippur was that year picnic. She had a Yom Kippur picnic and it was intentionally on Yom Kippur and it was a bunch of anarchist Jews and they were doing this. And I don't know if they were claiming that that was Judaism. They probably weren't at that point. But me now and maybe some others now, I would like to look at that as part of a tradition of proactive dissenters from like what Jewish authority says. And I do think by the sound of it, that's not exactly what you were going for. Um, and I want to I want to make that clear to folks who are ready to jump all over your event. But f- we've talked a lot on this show about permission. And I think what you said that you couldn't imagine that a rabbi would have blessed this event was before you started planning it. I want to imagine a world where all of us could imagine that if that makes sense. I want to imagine a Judaism where people being a rabbi would not tell you that, oh, automatically they must keep some sort of kosher because we'd understand that rabbi is not necessarily gatekeeper of rules, but rabbi is person who transmits various forms of Jewish tradition, which could include the Jewish tradition where Emma Goldman has a Yom Kippur picnic and that has, you know, bacon and or that didn't have bacon, that had shellfish um, at the Trefa banquet, accidentally or not. That would be powerful. And to folks out there listening, it could be a really incredible thing. So I, I like basically, I, I agree with you that we've all been told directly sometimes, but also implicitly that doing something like this must like is of necessity transgressive, striving to create a situation where you could absolutely have, you know, shellfish as the main as the main course and have that not be a big deal at all. That to me is something worth striving towards. From what I understood, there was a time in like maybe even the 80s when a lot of our communal dinners for the major Jewish organizations, for a long time, those dinners weren't kosher in the Bay Area, just because even the Jewish professionals, even the Jewish lay leaders, the people who were the most involved Jews for the most part were reform and didn't keep kosher. And so that says a lot about our community already. And that's why I think the Bay Area, uh, uh, an event could be no big deal like this here. Um, again, if you did this in New York, it probably would be a completely different story. So um, I, I know there was some backlash against that after a while. And now all the, all the meals, they do use kosher caterers for those meals. But for a long time, they didn't. It, it, it just didn't seem important. And enough of the rabbis got together, like the conservative and orthodox rabbis, and said, you realize you're excluding, okay, a small population, but you are excluding people. And so they stopped doing that. But it just says a lot about our community here that you know, we do have a very, very small number of people who keep strictly kosher. There's a way in which Trefa Banquet 2.0 mirrored Trefa Banquet 1.0 in the sense that there was a backlash that was claiming intent by the organizers that 
probably wasn't there. Uh, right. I mean, that definitely wasn't there in your case and that uh, it seems like wasn't there, at least arguably wasn't there in the case of Trade for Banquet 1.0. Either it was just a, an error in Trade for Banquet 1.0 or there were people that actually thought this was just fine. Nobody kept kosher, you know, or, or even more so. I, I think that what's so interesting in some of the reading about Trade for Banquet 1.0 is that uh, Cincinnati was known at that time as Porkopolis. And so the idea that there wouldn't be pork was a nod to keeping kosher. It was, you know, we didn't serve pork. That's, that is a big statement in Cincinnati. And so there's a real misunderstanding. And um, so I, I'm interested in sort of taking that in, in two directions. One is kind of um, just realizing that people who keep various Jewish traditions often see the same thing in a very different way from the people who don't keep those specific traditions. And it's interesting that if the story is reported in in the Forward and the J Weekly and various Jewish papers where probably uh, a larger than usual percentage of those readers, let's say comparing it to like the Jews who read the New York Times, um, are Jews who do keep various traditions. And so you get this kind of Pushback. I mean, I've seen on Facebook feeds of people that I know who are more traditional Jews, and so ostensibly a greater percentage of their Facebook friends are more traditional. That's where you see this like very angry backlash, whereas on the Facebook feeds of people who uh, are not very traditional, you see a very different set of responses. And so um, that's just sort of an interesting thing for our listeners. I hope that listeners who, um, whether they do keep various traditions, including keeping kosher, or whether they don't, is just to fully recognize the depth of the way that these two different groups of Jews see things differently. And But then I think that there's another element, which at least struck me from reading some of the Facebook posts of the people who were upset about this, is that it struck me that I, I felt like what I was seeing was food being experienced in a very different way than other issues, right? And I, and I wonder if maybe this is something that based on your expertise as a food writer, you could help us understand a little more deeply is it just sort of feels like there's something about food that is getting people literally in the viscera and that have and they're having a visceral reaction to this and and the the level of rage among those who do have rage is seems to me disproportionate to the fact that a few people got together in San Francisco and had some foods that you wouldn't choose to eat I could talk for hours about the role that food plays in memory and nostalgia, and it connects us to our ancestors. And, you know, the way you described it as having this visceral internal reaction, food is something you take within your body. It's like something that, you know, it, it, I, I get it. I get, I mean, food is deeply personal. And I think it's for some people, kosher laws are, you know, you eat how many times a day, three or more. And every time you eat, you're, I mean, if you keep kosher, you're supposed to be thinking about, you know, by eating things with a hexer every time you're observing God with every bite you take. And for me, um, you know, I love food for that ability to connect me to my ancestors. I, you know, my mother died 15 years ago and that was actually when I started thinking about becoming a chef because I felt like it would connect me more to her and her memory. Um, I also got my love of pork from her. Um, I, I have a piece that I wrote um, for Jeffrey Oskowitz's Pork Memoirs website, which was his project before he did the Gefilte Manifesto cookbook, in which I talk about my mother being a hidden child in Poland during the Holocaust and the family in which she was raised. Of course, they ate pork. And, um, and she never lost her love of it. And she raised me that way. And to me, eating pork is, it's a Jewish minhag in my family. 
people in their heads who keep kosher, sort of like what Dan was alluding to, equate eating that which is not kosher as discarding tradition and specifically discarding Jewish tradition. And like my Jewish grandmother made me peanut butter and bacon sandwiches. Like that was like when I went to grandma's, that's what I like. I knew that my peanut butter sandwiches were going to have peanut butter and bacon. I was one of the only Jewish kids in my school. And I would mention that. And like they were they were the ones that were surprised the Jewish kid got bacon. Like when I told Jewish people, like they weren't that surprised, like. (laughs) Okay, whatever. Um, Well, and and here's the thing. I think that people think that that was either ignorant or transgressive. And I think it probably was neither, right? Yeah, it was, it was, that was just a crunchy peanut butter sandwich with some more flavor. Like it it was, that was what we had. And like, uh, and what's funny is now I, I'm vegetarian and I, I don't even know fully whether I keep kosher or not. Cause when you're vegetarian, you don't eat things, but it's a question of whether you're consciously not eating them or I don't know. I, I, I have at points kept kosher and I might now keep kosher. Let's just keep it at that. But I would have thoroughly endorsed this as a rabbinical student. I would have got like, to me, like that whole question about blessing it, like to me, better to bless any food, better to, better to express gratitude for whatever the heck you're eating and then eat it, than to not take a moment to express gratitude or blessing or whatever and eat the most kosher food on the planet that's been hectored by every last orthodox rabbit like like to me that's where i come from so i just sort of shake my head at those who would castigate this as this terrible thing when all when what you were doing was having an educational communal event around food which is i hate calling things like the most jewish thing ever but i'm in this case i'm making an exception like it it's it's so jewish the reason we keep kosher is to be mindful about what we're eating, right? And I, I, it's to, you know, okay, so God says we can eat these things and not these things and we can't eat this with this and the hexer and all of that. Like the whole intention behind that is so you think about what you eat. It's not just this automatic reaction to put things in your mouth. It's like every time you eat, it's imbuing that the act of eating and thinking about what you're eating with holiness. And that is an idea that I am totally down with. I mean, I choose to keep kosher in my own mind, not by the laws in the Bible because they don't make sense to me, but I really care about where my meat comes from and I don't want to eat factory farm meat. And, you know, I know people who keep kosher are laughing at me when I say this, but the meat we had at the Trevor banquet was all grown within 60 miles, probably 35 miles of the event space where we had it. I met the farmers, me and another chef drove up there on Friday afternoon. We met the farmers, we got a tour, we saw the way they're raised and they're raised, you know, in free pens and with love and, you know, they're happy animals and not in some feedlot where they're injected with tons of antibiotics and, you know, I mean, I could go on and on, but people can read Michael Pollan to know what I'm talking about. But, you know, for me, that people care more about a rabbi blessing the meat than the way the animals were raised or the way the workers are treated who are working with these animals. I mean, the intention of kosher is very different than the rules themselves. I want to come back to something that you said. You know, I I think that it was interesting what Jonathan Sarna's response to this has been, you know, which is that the idea that... um, the Trefa Banquet 1.0, and, and and right, and he says, I hope that Trefa Banquet 2.0 won't do this, but that somehow this was a, a something that divided the Jewish community. And I, and I think that if the Trefa Banquet, first of all, that division would have happened anyway. Um, but second of all, if the Trefa Banquet 1.0 hadn't 
uh, divided the Jewish community in, in that way, it would have only been because a group of Jews would have had to agree that when we're in a Jewish setting with other Jews, we're not allowed to live our Jewish lives the way that we want to do live them. And sure, that's okay every once in a while when you're having guests over, and you could argue that that was what was going on in Trefa Banquet 1.0. But, you know, I'm thinking that there's another way in which the Jewish community is divided when Jews who don't keep kosher or don't keep various aspects of a more orthodox Jewish tradition, that if they feel that the only way that I am allowed to be in a Jewish space is to not be who I am, then fundamentally it's dividing the Jewish community in a different way because many of those people are just going to say, well, Judaism's not for me. So it doesn't appear that the Jewish community is divided because those people are sort of wandering away, but it's divided in my view just as much. I appreciate that there's this effort to say, like, this is the way that we're Jewish and we believe that's okay. And actually we want to build a community in which we don't have to hide elements of what we believe is okay. Is there anything that we haven't been able to touch on yet, either about Trefa Banquet 2.0 or just more broadly your thoughts on food in relationship to Judaism that you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, there's there's one expression. I mean, you know how I was describing earlier how Beshert, this event, like everything just came together so beautifully. And about two weeks before the event, I was reading the New York Times book review section and there was a review of Tova Mervis's latest book in which she talks about um, leaving orthodoxy. And the reviewer ended the review with a Yiddish expression I had never heard before. And pardon my Yiddish expression, but I'm going to read it to you. An men es chazer, ibn moil. And I shared that expression at the banquet because it means if you're going to eat pork, eat it until your mouth drips. <laughs> and the fact that I found that in the New York Times, literally two weeks before the banquet, I, I laughed out loud because I was like, I would have never thought, oh, I need, I need to see if there's anything about eating pork in Yiddish. I would have never even thought of that. It, it was like thinking about having a rabbi bless the event. Not to assume, of course, that everybody's Ashkenazi. We know that's not true. But for, for those Ashkenazi Jews, like myself, you know, to find this expression, which basically is saying that even back then, there was an expression about eating pork. And if you're going to eat it, you should enjoy it as much as you can, which I just think, you know, it's beautiful. I really appreciate that. And thank you so much, Alex Wall, for coming on this bonus episode. This has been a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, Lex, we don't usually do this in an episode, but since this is a bonus episode and we're not really going to have a chance to debrief on it, I thought it'd be interesting to spend at least a few minutes debriefing about why we thought this uh, trade for banquet 2.0 was so, such an interesting thing to bring to our listeners' attention. It, it was really striking to me to hear from Alex that it wasn't an event that was intended to be especially well-known to the public. It, it wasn't an effort to kind of make a statement. It was actually just a program of a particular community that was meant to uh, make a statement within the community, but not necessarily out to the outside world. So I think that's really important because some of the pushback that I've been hearing comes from the idea that somehow they were trying to make an in-your-face statement. And, and I think it's so interesting that that wasn't the case. I'm reflecting back to this ridiculous YouTube video I once watched where it's like a four-year-old. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's adorable. But it's, it's, it's this like three-year-old kid and 
he is meeting for the first time a, a, a gay adult couple. And the whole it's it's one of these, you know, what will kids do? How will they react kind of videos? And they do different kinds of things. So he's meeting and and they say to him, we're married, we're we're husbands. And he says, I've seen husbands and wives. I've never seen husbands and husbands. Okay, do you want to play ping pong now? And and it's this incredible moment of just like he it, he didn't care like he just learned a new thing. Now he wants to play ping pong. To me, I almost feel like there's a way of doing this kind of event with Trafe. It's like okay, we're gonna eat we're gonna eat Trafe. Let's go play ping pong now. And then there's also the way of saying which many of us, when it comes to the issue of that that YouTube video, want to like many of us do want to make a profound statement that you know marriage equality is important and two men marrying each other, two women marrying each other, any any people of any gender marrying each other are totally as legit as everybody else. And so I feel like there's some interesting balance in play that I hadn't even thought about because I'm so used to the events that are keeping kosher or that and you know, if we were a few a few decades back, we would be so used to as a society the couples that are one male and one female. So I, I don't have a lot of conclusions from that, but I've definitely learned that there are ways that you could not eat kosher just because you're not eating kosher. There are ways that you could proactively not eat kosher, but not mean to make a big statement with it like this event was. And then there are ways that you could mean to make a big statement, which I would also encourage, which could perhaps help to create a, a Jewish kind of future that we would like to see where all of those different practices are respected and equal. Well, I think there's a lot of levels to it. I mean, I'm just thinking about how the other day I attended the Women's March on the anniversary of Trump's inauguration. And I've been saying over and over again on the podcast that if there, if my synagogue had some kind of protest every week in front of Trump Tower, I would be there. And, you know, I am looking for a Jewish practice of that nature. And they're not doing it because it's violating the Jewish laws that the synagogue is built around. So, that, 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 you know, maybe for all kinds of other political reasons, I don't know, but they're not doing it. Um, and nevertheless, when I had an opportunity to spend my Shabbat protesting, I did do it. And then afterwards, I went and had lunch with my family at a kosher style deli. And then I posted it on Facebook that I had a really inspiring Shabbat. Now, on the one hand, I was posting it to my friends. Now, Facebook friends is an extended friend group, right? But I now I'm making it public on the podcast. But, you know, at that time, I wasn't trying to make some kind of big public statement. I was kind of telling my friends that I had a really inspiring Shabbat and I wanted to share it. You know, I, I mean, I violated a, a traditional version of Shabbat in a number of ways. I, I traveled to the protest. I paid money to get there. I went out to a restaurant and paid money. I ate not, uh, technically non-kosher food. You know, I took photographs. I wrote on Facebook. You know, there's so many ways in which I violated Shabbat. And yet, for me, it was a profoundly Jewish event and experience. For most people that are just trying to live their Jewish lives, right, the idea that I'm doing a particular act that is a transgression of traditional Jewish law or custom or whatever, the idea, you know, the, the idea that there's a distinction between I am doing that because I have a different sense of what I'm Jewishly called to do that is in some kind of tension with the traditional law versus I'm just trying to live my life and do the things that I enjoy doing as a human being. And it turns out that that's also intention or conflict with Jewish law. 
yeah, I think that observant Jews often think that there's a difference between those two. But I think that folks who are just Jews who are living their lives don't necessarily make a distinction between those two. I'm trying to figure out the the negative reaction. To what extent is it because of people sort of misunderstanding and thinking that somehow they're being uh, this is being shoved in their face, or whether it's food that has that that visceral impact, or or what it is exactly? But it was so interesting to me to see some of the vitriol expressed in opposition to this. It's not a purely religious thing because there's a million and a half religious rules that we all know are not being followed by Jews and nobody cares. I mean, nobody cares. Nobody's checking what clothes people are wearing when they walk in the door. And there's there's particular descriptions of what you are not allowed to wear if you mix wool and linen in the Bible. And there's Orthodox Jews who keep those laws and there's others who don't. But nobody would bat an eye if the majority of the people in the room were wearing clothes that would break those barriers. And I, and I part of me thinks that maybe that has to relate to food. And there's a deeper question here. But I think... Because food is so central to us, we've made kashrut the litmus test. We've made that like the most centralized or the most Jewy of the Jewy laws such that to actively transgress, in quotes, that law is a bigger deal than the other ones. I'm thinking to this amazing Mishnah, actually. I don't remember exactly what it says, but it's something to the effect of like – here are the here is one way that you can break Shabbat in like eight different ways all at once. It's it's giving you like an example of somebody riding a horse while doing a bunch of the, like I don't remember exactly what it was, but they're breaking like eight rules all at once, and they're bringing it up because the question is like, do you have to bring eight different sacrifices as sins or whatever, or is it just because they're at the same time you just bring one whatever? But like to me, there's something profound in that. Like you could like at any given time, a lot of us are breaking some of these laws, whether it's by the clothes we're wearing. There's a million questions, and we recognize especially if we're not Orthodox, but even if we're Orthodox, we recognize that Jews aren't keeping all these laws. So we can say that kashrut's somehow special and that the food we eat deserves a level of scrutiny that other things don't. Or we can say, even me, as somebody who does care deeply about what I eat and who is a vegetarian and in certain senses keeps kosher, we can say, you know what? Whatever those choices are that people are making, we're going to wrestle with them deeply and create Jewish communities around that wrestling. Well, I'm glad that this uh, event has sort of come relatively soon after our conversation with Barbara Tita, because I want to foreground again the question of whether it is Jewish law, right, and Judaism as set out by various elites, including rabbis. Is that the definition of Judaism? And that has been what all the people were doing all along and now or you know in the last few hundred years is all this transgressing is happening and somehow Judaism is changing the reality is is that there have been a lot of Jews throughout Jewish history who didn't really keep kosher to that extent who didn't really keep Shabbat to that extent who didn't have the same beliefs at the end of the day there are all sorts of reasons why Jews have ever felt part of the Jewish community. Sometimes it's been due to feeling bound by these set of laws, and sometimes it's been for profoundly different reasons. And I think we're seeing that play out here. We've been seeing that play out. And I think it's really important for all of us to examine closely when we see an event like this that kind of... I think we all sort of understand how it can kind of push some buttons to to say, okay, but let me let me be reflective about it and let me think about exactly why uh, is this pushing buttons and you know maybe to sort of understand that it's a little more complex than that. 
Yeah, and uh, we'll close this bonus episode out just like we do all of our other episodes and uh, just encourage all of you out there to be in touch with us. If you've got your your gripes about Kashrut or about those who don't keep Kashrut or about us or about whatever, send them our way. We love that. We do respond. Here are the ways you can do it. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can always uh, visit our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation, either on a monthly recurring basis or a one-time gift. And you can do either of those at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So with that, whatever you are eating for lunch today, whatever you're eating for dinner, whatever you're choosing not to eat for lunch today, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>